in about a week, uh, Jewish people around the world are going to be uh, participating, observing in a holiday called, does anyone know? Uh, Yom Kippur. You might have gotten that right. Yom Kippur, uh, or the Day of Atonement. It's sandwiched between a holiday called Rosh Hashanah, which just began a day or two ago. Uh, and then it, it goes for a period of time and culminates with Yom Kippur. It's not a, a celebratory occasion, the Day of Atonement at all. It's quite solemn because its focus is on acknowledgement of sin. So Jewish people around the world will enter synagogues and temples and in their households. Um, they will pay attention to what their conscience is revealing to them about wrongdoing and unholiness before a holy God. They will confess it, repent of it, and they will look to him for atonement or forgiveness uh, during this particular annual observance called Yom, the day, Kippur, of atonement or of covering. Uh, this is not something Jews have made up. It's mandated in Leviticus chapter 23. You could read there sometime if you'd like. Well, I hope you do. It lists a number of holy observances that God ordained for Israel. And one of them is this holiday I just mentioned, Yom Kippur. It is to take place in the Hebrew month. This is what it says in Leviticus. The Hebrew month known as Tishri, Tishri, which corresponds to our September or October. And so you see in about a week there will be Yom Kippur. It's a day, uh, the Bible says, that is to be set apart from all others because the sin issue is so serious. So take time, says Almighty God, to acknowledge your sin against me, your violation of my commandments, your neediness to be pardoned and forgiven and made clean, your inability to do anything to obtain forgiveness on your own, and your willingness to accept my offering of an animal sacrifice, a lamb without blemish offered on your behalf. And so this will take place next week as it has uh, for thousands of years. And the mere fact that Yom Kippur occurs annually year after year tells us something about the sin problem. It's this, it doesn't go away. You see, if it did, all it would take is one day of atonement. Let's acknowledge sin uh, confess it, repent of it, deal with it, and move on. But apparently that isn't the case because the day of covering for sin uh, is necessitated annually. And so uh, last year's Yom Kippur took care of the previous year's sins, but my people then are faced with Yom Kippur coming up again, during which time they will say, here we go again. This sense of not being right with God will haunt uh, my people as it should around the world. The guilt of sin uncovered, unatoned for 
will uh, be a burden, again, my people will carry in particular on this annual observance called Yom Kippur. And so the day is a reminder of ongoing sin and guilt before God and the sin issue. That matter seems never to be finished. But just shortly before he breathed his last breath, this ultimate lamb of God, this Jesus said, no, it is finished. And then he died as the ultimate unblemished, that is to say sinless lamb of God for our sin. This he did purely by grace. So uh, I want to ask you a question to be answered just for yourselves. Are, your, are you more prone to remember your guilt or God's grace? I'm speaking to Christians. Are you more prone to remember your guilt, the guilt of your sin, or the grace of Almighty God? If the answer is guilt, then that's another thing that slows us down in our usefulness uh, to the King of Kings. But if the focus of attention is on acknowledgement, confession, and repentance from sin, accepting the fact that what Jesus did took care of it all, paid in full, then our focus becomes not on the guilt of our sin, but on the grace of God in forgiving it. And then we become filled with his spirit of pardon and forgiveness and favor. It shows and people start being attracted and they start saying, what is it in you? What do you have? And we say, it's not a what, it's a who. And his name is Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb of God. So in the text before us tonight, the writer of Hebrews, we've called this wonderful book, The Letter of Better, wants us to know that there is a reminder that is better than any other reminder we could possibly think of. And this he will do in just four verses of Hebrews chapter 10. Here's how it begins, Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, the law is a reference to what God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. He said, tell the people, live this way. But there's another aspect to the law God gave to Moses. It wasn't only guidelines for living. It was a provision when my people did not live rightly. So part of the law was a provision of atonement for sin consisting of animals, offered as substitutes for human sin. That was a part of the law. That is a good thing. That aspect of the law, all the law given by God is good because God is good. Here's a provision for your sin. I will provide a way by which it could be atoned for. It's in the law of Moses or the old covenant. That is a good thing, a provision from a good and gracious God. But that system of old covenant sacrifice for sin is not quite as good as we may be prone to think it is. Uh, certainly, it's not as good as most of my people even today think it is. Well, why isn't it quite as good? Well, it has only a shadow 
of the good things to come. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. It has the law of sacrifice, has only a shadow of the good things to come. Now, folks, a shadow is a good thing. But a shadow, I'm sure you will agree, is not the real thing. A shadow only calls our attention to a real and substantive thing. For instance, look at this. Uh, on the left is the real thing. On the right, ain't. On the right is the shadow. It has no existence, no reality, no purpose apart from the substantive figure of the man on the left. You would be um, uh, remiss if you confused the two. If you acknowledge the shadow as that which is real and has life and ignored the man, people would think there's something wrong with you. There's a distinction between a substantive thing and a shadow. Uh, here again is something else to look at. You see in this particular photo a tree casting its shadow. And in a sense, the two are, uh, are indistinguishable. The real thing, the tree and the shadow. But you would not, I think, want to make an attempt at climbing up the shadow of the tree. We know it's just a shadow. It isn't real. Grab onto it. Use it as a mooring point. You'll find how, how, how much it is not real. It's not the tree. It's just the shadow uh, of the tree. And and those shadows serve a very useful and good purpose of calling attention to the real item which they reflect. They are not, they're never the real item. In fact, even a young boy like this one, who is having fun with his shadow now, knows that it is he who is generating the shadow and it is not the shadow which is generating him. The shadow, you see, this is the point I'm trying to make, uh, is, is not the real deal. It, it, it serves the purpose, good purpose, uh, of pointing to a real thing, a substantive uh, thing, a complete and perfect, solid kind of a thing. But, but a shadow is not that. A shadow has no substance of its own. It has no existence of its own. A shadow merely reveals something of far greater import and significance and value and substance. And so in the same way, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the old covenant law of animal sacrifice to provide a covering for sin is only a shadow of the good things to come. And what are these good things? So, so when Moses wrote in Leviticus about the law of God and animals as an offering for atonement, they were looking forward to something to come, good things that had not yet come, knowing that the law is only pointing to, is only a shadow of those good things to come. Well, what are those good things to come? All the things that are uh, enveloped in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the good things to come. The shadow of the Old Testament law pointed to it. Now, when my people stop at the shadow and don't go one step further by faith to the substance, it's as foolish as trying to climb the shadow of that tree which we saw earlier. The good things to come through the unblemished Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus 
our favor and forgiveness with Almighty God based upon his grace and in spite of our flaws and imperfections and humanity and sin and in spite of our efforts, the good things to come is the totality of a pardon and forgiveness and adoption and acceptance and favor by an otherwise unapproachably God termed in the Bible a consuming fire. The good things to come are to be in right stead a friend of God rather than an adversary. The good things to come are to come to the Father through the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. These are all the good things the law foreshadowed. And so when my people stop with the law, they're missing the point. And when Gentile people uh, stop with their own religious laws <laughs> and think that's all there is, oh no, we're living in the shadow of what is far better. The substance is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the good things to come involve all these things enveloped and encapsulated in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and one of the good things to come is the Spirit of God in us. Think about it. That's what happens the moment someone says, Oh God, I'm empty, but that I'm filled by sin come into my life, forgiving me of it. Take possession of me. Move in, will you, please? Would you make me a kind of a temple of your own presence in me? And God says, I will, I shall. And he does. He sends his very nature, his spirit. We call him the Holy Spirit into us. And then we begin to be changed. You've sensed it, so have I. There's evidence of it if you're a Christian. He begins to change us on the inside. And that's why the sacrifice of bulls and goats of old is only a shadow, because that's just an external thing. So my people of old would do what Moses said, and they would find from the flock a very valuable, unblemished lamb or bull or goat and they would offer it but it never changed their hearts and what's the evidence next year they're doing the same thing again here comes the day of atonement again and again and again and again the sacrifices of bulls and goats cannot do what the spirit of God can and so we read in verse one they can never make perfect those who draw near and that's God's intent for us, to make us whole and complete and like him. And sacrifices external to us cannot do that. Only the Lord Jesus taking up his abode in our life can make us to be the kind of people God wants us to be. And so the sacrifices of bulls and goats cannot change the sinner, in fact, uh, they were only a reminder of sin, just as it says in verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. So my people, this year again, um, will enter the synagogue. Oftentimes from morning till night, they will fast. They will plead, oh God. Forgive us. They'll not leave with any real assurance that the matter is settled. In fact, at the end, we will say to one another, may your name be inscribed in the book of life. 
It's a wish. It's good wishes. May your name be inscribed. I hope you make the cut. That's a terrible way to live, don't you think? But that's the way it is. So uh, we're reading in this text uh, a reference by the writer of Hebrews to this holiday, Yom Kippur. And that's why I'm mentioning it. And that's why I want to tell you a little more about it, because I think when you hear about it, you'll get a fuller appreciation of what the writer of Hebrews is, is really talking about. So according to Leviticus chapter 23, as I mentioned, uh, on Yom Kippur, three things are required of the people. It states this in Leviticus 23. Three things are required of the people. Here's the first. Humble yourselves. Second, accept God's covering for sin. And thirdly, stop working. Those are the three things. You could read Leviticus 23. You'll see this is what God is requiring of the people. To humble themselves meant they were to put themselves in the right perspective with reference to God. They were to realize he's creator, I am creature. He is holy and I am unholy. We have fallen short of his standards. That's what it means to humble yourself before God. It's not to say I make a few mistakes now and then. It's to say I have sin in me, and that's why I sin. I am a sinner. It's not to say, well, my parents didn't raise me right. I come from a broken home. My dad never played Little League Baseball. Everyone's doing it. No. No, it's to say, oh, God, I have sinned against thee and thee only. What you require of me is good, acceptable, and perfect. I'm not. When your law is, law is matched up next to me, it reveals a problem not in your requirements, but in me who fails to live by them. Oh, God, forgive me. That's what it means to humble yourself before God. And then the second thing is to accept his covering for sin. God said, I will provide a lamb of sacrifice to cover for your sin. And then the third thing was to do no work. It says, you can read this in Leviticus 23, anyone who does work on this particular day will be cut off from the house of Israel. Cut off is a, uh, is a metaphor for you will die. It's just that serious to do nothing. Stop working. That's what it says. So these are the things the people were to do on Yom Kippur. But now let me tell you what their high priest was to do on Yom Kippur. So bear with me. I'm going to go into some detail. A week before Yom Kippur, the high priest of Israel left his home and his family. He was separated from them. He was to focus on the tasks before him on the Day of Atonement because they must be performed with exactitude and precision. So on the night before Yom Kippur, he was deprived of food and sleep. He must be entirely focused on his responsibilities for the next morning. In the morning, the temple area in Jerusalem would have been filled with people. Everyone would have filled the precincts of the temple. And there, a linen sheet was hung on the roof of one of the buildings in the temple precinct. It would serve as a changing area for this high priest. He would go behind it and remove his personal uh, everyday clothing, and he would instead put on white linen garments. 
He would then wash his hands and feet so as to be ceremonially clean. He would do this a total of 10 times on this particular day. And then he placed his hands on the head of a bull. And he would uh, take this bull, which was set aside as a sin offering, first for himself and for the sins of his immediate family. And this is the prayer he would utter. Oh God, I, this is the high priest, I have committed iniquity, transgressed and sinned before you. I and my house, oh God, forgive the iniquities and transgressions and sins which I have committed and transgressed and sinned before you. I and my house, as it is written in the law of your servant Moses, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse me from all our sins. We shall be clean before the Lord. And when he said the divine name before the Lord, all the people fell on their faces and said, Baruch Shem Kivod Malkuto Leolam Vo'ed. Blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever and ever. I'm not sure we have a clue what it really is today to be a penitential sinner. We're so casual about it. I think we're taking our lead from famous personages caught in scandalous sin who stand up before the cameras and say, I made a mistake. Now let's get back to business. Oh no, my people shook in the presence of Almighty God, when they saw his priest, their representative, lay hands on this bull, an innocent living thing to be sacrificed first on behalf, even of the high priest and his family, and when he uttered the name Yahweh, Lord, they realized they were in the presence of the unmentionable. We don't even mention that name of God typically, but on Yom Kippur. And they would fall to their knees and they would hide their faces. Let me tell you something. For those people, God was not their co-pilot. He was not the big guy upstairs. He was unapproachably holy God whose name you must not even mention in vain or in a profane way. And then after this, the priest would turn his attention to two male goats. And he would take a little small box, shake it. It contained two lots in it. He would remove one at a time. On one lot, the words were written, for the Lord. And on the other, for Azazel, meaning the scapegoat. The goat connected with the lot, saying for the Lord, would soon be offered in sacrifice. And the other would be the scapegoat, and to distinguish between the two goats, the high priest tied a red string to the head of the scapegoat. Then he slaughtered the bull, collected its blood in a bowl, gave it to an assistant priest who would stir it to keep it from coagulating, and then he scooped up some coals from the bronze altar in a gold fire pan, and with this in one hand and with incense in the other, he entered the holy place of the temple. And then he would pass from 
the holy place containing items such as the golden lampstand, the menorah, and he would pass through the holy place beyond the veil into the place known as the holy of holies. This was entered into only by the high priest, only on this day, Yom Kippur. And he would put incense on the coals and smoke would fill the room. And then he went to get the blood of the bull and he entered the holy of holies again. And with his finger, he sprinkled uh, uh, on the mercy seat blood. And then he sacrificed the male goat designated for the Lord and carried its blood into the holy place and into the holy of holies and sprinkled blood all around once again. You see, everything had to be atoned for. Everything has been defiled by sin. People today say, if I sin, what business is it of yours? What an underestimation of the pervasive corrupting effects of sin. I must tell you, we're in this world together. What you do affects me. What I do affects you. Do you think God will be mocked? There is no such thing as private secret sin. Don't buy that. This idea of two consenting adults, forget it. That's not the way it works. That's not, not the way God ordered things. Forget about pollution in the environment out there. It's pollution in our characters. The whole, in fact, the anxious longing of creation is so affected by human sin that it longs for the revealing of the sons of God. This idea of it's none of your business what I do behind closed doors. Yes, it does. It affects me because it affects Almighty God who created us all and put us in this one place called the world. And so... The high priest had to, had to anoint, had to cleanse absolutely everything, even inanimate objects with the blood of the sacrificed bull because everything was corrupted by sin. Everything had to be cleansed with blood. And now the high priest will provide atonement for the people. He had provided atonement for himself, and now he will provide atonement for the people. So he goes to the goat, the one on which he had put the red thread. He lays his hands on it and he recites the same confession of sins as before, only this time he substitutes the house of Israel for himself and for his own house. And the goat, this goat, Azazel, is then led away over a bridge by a priest particularly assigned to the task who takes the goat about 12 miles out of the city, away from the temple, into the wilderness. He brings the goat to a ravine, and he pushes it over the edge. This news about what happened to the scapegoat would be relayed back to the populace by a series of messengers waving flags along the way. The people would hear the news and they would rejoice because all this symbolized the removal of their sins far from them. The scapegoat, you see, can never find its way back. The scapegoat, the symbol of sin, can never find its way back to them. The priest dealt with it. Over the edge it went. As far as the east is from the west, so far they feel have their sins been removed, don't you see, from them, and so they would rejoice. And while all this was taking place, the high priest has been burning the sacrificial parts of the bull and goat on the altar 
as a sin offering. He would remove his linen clothing and bathe himself again. And then he put on gold, high priestly garments and washed his hands and feet again. And then he sacrificed two rams as a burnt offering. And he washed his hands and feet again. And he took off his gold garments and bathed again. And he put on the linen garments and washed his hands and feet Again, he then returned to the Holy of Holies to get the fire pan, which he had left behind earlier on. And then he washed his hands and feet. You guessed it, again. And then he took off his linen clothes and bathed and put on gold garments and washed his hands and feet again. Then he went back to the holy place and burned the afternoon incense and lit the temple lamps. And then he washed his hands and feet and took off the gold garments and put on his own clothes and Finally, his day has come to an end and he makes his way home to be with his family, to sit, to eat. He was thankful. They were all thankful that he had not been struck down in the Holy of Holies by Almighty God. They were thankful that God had accepted his ministrations on their behalf. Now, folks, I've taken all of your time to painstakingly describe this for a reason. Do you notice how high priest-centered is the Day of Atonement? Do you notice all the washings, all the clothing changes, all of his activity, all the rituals? Can you see how centered atonement is on the work of the high priest. The people, do you notice, had so few responsibilities. In fact, the people were told to do no work. On this day of atonement, they were simply to humble themselves, accept God's covering for sin, and stop working. The people did nothing. The high priest did everything. Oh. It would be great to have such a high priest today. Do we have such a high priest today? No. We have a far better one. Don't you get it? That high priest had to first atone for his own sins. He had the same problem we did. The people staked their access to God on the ministrations of one just as imperfect and sinful as they were. He had to atone for his own sins and even for the sins of his own. We don't have a high priest like this. We have the Lord Jesus, just like us, yet without sin. He does not need to atone for his own sin, for he never committed any. He is without sin. Are you kidding? We don't entrust our forgiveness to a questionable high priest offering a questionable sacrifice. Are you kidding? Do you know those people of old were so concerned about whether on this particular Yom Kippur God would find the activity and offering of their high priest acceptable that he wore gold bells on the hem of his garment? They couldn't enter the Holy of Holies. They were gathered around a massive crowd on the outside, attuned to the bells. As long as they could hear the bells, they knew the high priest was still alive. He was not struck 
down dead. You know a rope was tied to his ankles? If the bells stopped, they knew he's dead. God did not accept his offering. He's gone in with unatoned for sin of his own. How could he atone for ours? They couldn't go into the place, so they would pull him out by the ankles with the rope because they were not allowed into this particular holy place. Could I tell you something? We don't have to do that. Because what the Lord Jesus did was so acceptable to the Father that the Father vindicated him by raising him up from death. That's what the resurrection is. The resurrection is God saying, I approve. I accept his sacrifice. Up from the grave, he arose. Don't you see? Oh, no. I don't want to go back to that. And that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Uh, the writer is warning Jewish people in the day who had some connection to Yeshua, but I don't think a real saving one. He was saying, don't be tempted, even in hard times, to go back to all of that. Do you want inferior system of sacrifices when you could have the Lamb of God who suffered and died and rose up on your behalf, cleanse you totally from sin, not with an annual day of atonement and fasting and all this stuff, but with a once and for all sacrifice. It is finished. That's what the Lord Jesus said, and that's why the writer of Hebrews wants us to know the day of atonement and all with it is but a shadow of good things to come. It provided only a temporary covering for sin, not a permanent solution. The people had to go through the same elaborate procedure year after year because the sacrifices of an animal could never fully deal with the sin problem. And so we read in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And why were the sacrifices of animals so ineffective in removing sin? Because they were never meant to do so. <laughs> they were never meant to remove sin. They were meant to foreshadow the one who could and would come to remove sin. That's the point. It's just a shadow. All that religion is just a shadow. So too is your religious background. Since I've exposed myself and sort of embarrassed my background and people, let me get you too. All efforts to jump through religious hoops so as to win God's favor and forgiveness is in vain. They can never change your heart. They can't do what the Lord Jesus can do, who says, I'll not only forgive you, I'll take up my abode in my life. I'll transform you. I'll set you apart unto me. I'll put my mind in yours. I'll give you my heart. I'll change your heart. No religion can do that. Only a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. John the baptizer. In Hebrew, we call him Yohanan. Yohanan. That's John. Pastor Yohanan from now on. Yochanan, John the Baptist, was out and about one day. He had his own followers. One day, he pointed them to the form of another, of whom he said, this is recorded in John chapter 1, verse 29, of whom it says, the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. 
I was reviewing this, going over this with my friend, uh, Gary Williams, one of our members, who, by the way, see all these pictures and words and all the rest? That's there because Gary Williams put them there. There's a lot that these wonderful people do behind the scenes to make, make little guys like me look good. But let me tell you, they do the, they do the work. So anyway, Gary was saying, do you notice when John the Baptist saw Jesus, are you, do you see what he called him? He called him, he referred to him as the Lamb of God. Odd. We would have thought he would say, look, the King of Kings, look, the Lord of Lords, look, the Majestic One, look, royalty, look, the Lamb of God. A most unusual term. And I had to admit to my Gentile friend, Gary, I'm ashamed of this. No, I never noticed that. But that is the essential reason why he came, isn't it? To be the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, uh, taking his place uh, on the cross for you and for I first. Now, don't uh, hang on here. The second time, hang on. You did, uh, King of kings and Lord of lords, you just wait. You just wait. The first time he, come to, he came to suffer and die, for us, first as Lamb of God, then later as Lion of Judah. Just buckle up. May not be long now. Anyway, behold, the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world. As the scapegoat, Azazel, went off symbolically uh, bearing the sins of the people, our Lord Jesus has not symbolically, but has actually removed the guilt of our sin. I love these verses of Scripture, don't you? He has cast all our sin behind his back. It's a wonderful poetic way of saying he's not going to go back there <laughs> and retrieve it and hold it up in front of us and say, see, see? No, we go, we go back there. <laughs> we, we try to bring up past sin. No, 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 he's cast it behind his back. So what then are we required to do? Well, we are to do the same thing my people were required to do, humble ourselves, understand your right position before God. You have sinned against him as have I. I did not make mistakes. I have sinned. So have you. He is very holy. I am not. Humble yourself. is to put yourself in right relationship to Almighty God. Secondly, accept his sacrifice for our sin. <clears throat> Jesus, the Son of God. Accept his sacrifice. And then thirdly, and I think this is the most difficult for us, do no work. Do no work to win God's favor. Do no work to earn God's forgiveness. Isn't that contrary to everything we've been taught and know? Because then you would take credit. You would not glory in the cross. You would glory in your good behavior. That's why religion is bad. Religion always pumps up the practitioner of religion. I bow down to Mecca five times a day. I fast on Yom Kippur. And then for Baptists, I bring food to the potluck. I don't know, whatever we do. <laughs> whatever we do. These are good things. Don't misunderstand. I'm just saying all we need is a little opportunity to take credit for our good standing with Almighty God, and we shall. And therefore, God commands us, do no work but rest in the finished work of the Lamb of God provided by Almighty God on our behalf. This is the hardest thing for us to do. You know what Hebrews says? Work hard at entering into Sabbath rest. Sabbath is not a day. No, 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 not any longer. Sabbath is a relationship. 
work hard at entering into sin. You would say, you have to work at resting? Yes, because we're so filled with pride. I have to rest in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ at my worst. The Father offered his best. Rest. Rest. So as we draw to a close, and I should have done this a few moments ago, but okay. Um, in verse 3 is a word. I just want to call to your attention. It's the word reminder. See, it says, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins. You probably have that or something like it. The word reminder. I just want to point this out. You know, the Bible, the New Testament was written in Greek. So, so when you look to the Greek behind this word, reminder, you find out it's the same Greek word for another word having to do with remembering. It's a word the Lord Jesus used when he instituted what we now call the Lord's Supper. He said, do this as a reminder or in remembrance of me. I just want to tell you, it's exactly the same word as in Hebrews. That's all. It's not a Greek class, but I just want to get excited about this. For, for, for this reason, while Satan wants us to be reminded of one thing, Savior wants us to be reminded of an entirely different thing. While Satan wants us to be reminded of the guilt of our sin, and work at it, and work at it, and work at it. And do your own covering up. Make an apron of leaves. Try to be a better person. Give money to the poor. Do all kinds of crazy stuff. Jump through religious. While Satan wants to remind us of the guilt of our sin, the Savior wants us to be reminded of what he already did to atone for it. So we got a choice, my fellow Christians. What are we going to let? Who are we going to let remind us of stuff? The evil one is always there to accuse the brethren. Always, always, always. And all we have to do is remember the elements of communion. Co-union with almighty God through the Son. Holy communion. All we have to do is remind the evil one of those two elements. For the Lord Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Stop breaking yourself. And this is my blood poured out for you. Stop thinking you have to bleed. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. So, folks, what will it be for you? Will it be reminders of guilt? Or will it be reminders of grace? If the Lord tarries and we arrive here in this place next week, we'll have the privilege under our pastor's leadership of celebrating the Lord's Supper. We never take it for granted here. It's as holy as holy could be. And we do it often around here. <laughs> I need a reminder, so do you. The Lord Jesus said, remember, remember, when you partake of these elements, they're very common, ordinary elements, but they're symbols of an extraordinary deed I did on your behalf so that you could rest. 
You deserve to be broken, and you deserve to bleed, but you don't have to, because I did it on your behalf. Take this in remembrance of me. What are you going to be reminded of? The guilt of your sin or the grace of your Savior? It takes work. Make a choice. I was preparing this, and the song came into my mind, Grace, Grace, God's Grace. Don't make it guilt, guilt. My guilt. Come on. What Jesus did is enough. Don't you believe him when he said it is finished? Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse. Now, here's what the blood of bulls and goats could not do. Cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is, this is a line I love. Grace that is greater I'm not denying my sin. You must not deny yours. But this line says, grace that is greater than all my sin. We should sing this. You need to help me for obvious reasons. Let's sing. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace, Grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all ours. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much. Thank you for doing this once and for all time. Thank you for cleaning us, for giving us. Thank you for inhabiting us changing us. We see the fruit of your presence in our lives. Thank you for taking us up. Thank you for considering us to be as sons and daughters and family members. Thank you for dealing with our sin problem. Thank you for living for us, having first died for us. Thank you for the day when you will come back for us. Thank you for removing the guilt of our sin just like the scapegoat pushed over a cliff never to return. Oh God, thank you for separating us from the penalty, power, and one day even the presence of our sin and instead joining us to you from whom we had hitherto been separated. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Lord Jesus, we think we may be on the verge of some serious petition as a church for six days straight, begging you for intervention, contingent on our renewed commitment to holiness. Oh God, would you do what our pastor has a vision for you to do here? That is to make us to be a spark plug for a movement in this place, this state, this country, and around the world. And to God be the glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.